Good morning, guys. It's good to be with you. Before we begin, I wanted to make an announcement about Advent Conspiracy, something that we're trying uh, for the first time ever this year as a church, where we are seeking to focus uh, our church on giving to a particular uh, ministry, organization. We're asking us to sacrifice together this Christmas season uh, to be able to give to a recent partnership that we have with Hope Rising Uganda. Many of you guys know Mark and Lene Pearson. Uh, Lene helps run uh, Hope Rising Uganda, which is a school uh, in Uganda. And the school works through partnerships where people give to be able to support the kids. And and the the school is basically all run and supported by outside donors. But one of the things that Lene has talked to us about is they don't have uh, donors or funds essentially for medical expenses that arise in the lives of these kids. So kids get sick, they don't have necessarily a way to get that, it's kind of scrounging around funds. So what we have decided, the elders and I have decided uh, this year to seek to bless Hope Rising Uganda by essentially giving them a stockpile of funds for their medical expenses. So as a, as a church, this, this Advent season, we are asking uh, people to sacrifice what they would maybe normally spend, and sometimes we can get so excessive, I think, on our spending. Uh, so Seth and I have talked about this, and we've decided not to give gifts. Uh, and to take what we would normally spend on Christmas and give that to Hope Rising Uganda uh, as a way to, to bless them and serve them. I just think I'm feeling convicted and uh, like, hey, I have everything I need. I mean, I've got more than I need. You know, I've got Stephanie. Uh, she's not here to hear that, I guess. So. <laughs> oh, there she is. Okay. You're hiding in the back. Um, so that's what we were deciding to do, and th- we've, made it, we've tried to make it easy to give online. Uh, there's a way through our, our regular giving uh, website. Uh, you just select the fund, Hope Rising Uganda. You can give that way, or we have this little black box that isn't talked about a lot, but it's for those who like to give checks. Uh, you can slip a check in there and just ha- write on the line, Hope Rising Uganda. Uh, so those, those ways are available, and that's what we're seeking to give to this Christmas season. So if you have any questions... Uh, you can talk to myself or Will or Kelly. Is normally the one who gives the announcement. She's upstairs today. Uh, but that's what we're seeking to do this, this Christmas season for Advent. We're calling it Advent Conspiracy. All right. You guys good? Okay. Is that good, Will? Sweet. All right. Let's turn our text to 1 Samuel 13. Grab your Bible and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 13 in its entirety, verses 1 through 23. Today marks the end of our journey through the book of 1 Samuel this year. Uh, For the past 12 weeks, starting back in September, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, 1 Samuel marked the beginning of trying something new in our preaching calendar, kind of in the life of our church. We've just started with a book, and we've just worked our way through it until we're done. Uh, Whether that's Easter or Christmas or Father's Day, Mother's Day, that's just kind of been our thing. We just work through the books. Uh, but what we try to do, what, we, what we're doing in 1 Samuel is we're starting a, kind of a new cycle, where in the fall, we're going through 1 Samuel. Then we're going to take four weeks and go through Advent. And then in January, we're la- launching into the Gospel according to John. We'll be in John up until summer. Summer will break and do like a minor prophet or a smaller letter or do a couple of topical things. And then we'll jump back into the fall with 1 Samuel. Does that make sense? So... Well, where we left off. So next fall, we'll, be, we'll pick up right back where we're in 14. And then I think since originally Samuel was written just called Samuel, it wasn't First and Second Samuel, it was just called Samuel, we're going to go through Second Samuel. So be prepared. You know, hopefully you guys are in this for the long haul, as, as I pray that I am as well. Uh, probably the next three, four years. I don't know how long it's going to take, Will, but we're just kind of hunkering in here. So um, that's where we're going. So t- today marks the end of that cycle through First Samuel before we launch into Advent. And we're excited about Advent this year. This, week, this year, we are pausing for Advent. Uh, so those who like, you know, stories about Jesus and Christmas, you know, it's not just like, I don't know if we did Judges last year for Advent, but <laughs> it's just a little different Christmas feel. Um, we're taking four weeks for Advent, and we're calling it uh, Fulfillment of Scripture. And we're going to look at four Old Testament passages that describe the, the prophecies and how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So, as Will said, I think three weeks ago now, or a while back, uh, this would be a great time to invite someone into, like, uh, what is the gospel about? What is Christianity about? How is the Bible a kind of unified story that points to Jesus? 
because that's what we believe it is. Uh, so next, next week launches that kind of study, and Nathan's going to kick us off um, looking at Advent. Any questions about that? Cool. I'm excited about it, uh, but I get the last three messages, not the first one. So, All right, I think enough talking about that. Let's get into 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Samuel lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now, if you're reading along in a Bible, that's not an English standard version that I think is uh, maybe 2007 or later. It might say something very different. Uh, if you have an older version of the English standard version, like this Bible is, I think is a 2007, it says Saul was dot, 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 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Some translations, though, if you're reading from like the NASB or the Amplified Bible or the Christian Standard Bible or the New International Version or the New Living Translation, says Saul was 30 years old and he began to reign and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now, those are very different. And why? Uh, it's because in the original language that this story was written in, which is Hebrew, uh, the, the Hebrew that we have is difficult to understand. Literally, it would be translated, Saul was a year old when he became king, which we know is not true um, because Saul was walking around and talking, and one-year-olds simply cannot do that. Uh, seemingly what's happened is the scholars who seek to translate the ESV and the New King James start, thought it doesn't really make sense uh, to keep it like that, so they, they said Saul lived for a year and then reigned for two years. So that's how they're seeking to make sense of it. Um, other translations seem like they've took what seemed to be some of the older Greek translations of the Hebrew. So the Bible was written in Hebrew, then it was translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. Uh, some of those Septuagint manuscripts record that Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. And, and they take that in, in what Paul says in uh, Acts 13.21, where, where he states Saul reigned in Israel 40 years, and they're seeking to make sense, okay, uh, it was 30 years, and then he reigned 42 years altogether. And the reason that they're doing this is because uh, this verse 1 in many of the original Hebrews and in the Greek is lacking. So what seems to happen is there, there was a number there that maybe early in the, the copying of the manuscripts was lost. And since it was lost now, translations have tried to make sense of what happened. Uh, there's a Latin translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is called the Vulgate, which states that Saul's reign was... He started reigning when he was 20. So you can see there's some variations here. There's some differences in, in the manuscripts. And, and this led one uh, Bible scholar to say it like this, quote, We must admit that this verse has been so corrupted by transmission that it makes little sense as it stands. Right? And I'm, I, I feel comfortable leaving it with that. Right? But I think I want to encourage us and remind us that just because there are some variants in the text, for example, in this one, and there are others in the scripture, that doesn't mean that the Bible is not trustworthy or has contradictions. There are some textual variants that we find in, in uh, the scriptures, in the New and Old Testaments. But the Bible does not lose its trustworthiness or its, its reliability because of all these variants in the Old and New Testament. None of them affect doctrine or key teachings of the scriptures. Does that make sense? So you're not going to find one variant that says God was four persons and two beings or... I, don't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, sorry. Uh, none, none of these variants affect uh, the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. So we can trust and know that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts, that ultimately the Bible is not a historical textbook, but a unified story that points to Jesus and the gospel of grace. And let me remind you, encourage you, that you can trust the mainline English translations that you can find at a Christian bookstore or online, the ESV, the Amplified Bible, the New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, these main denominations are trustworthy. They're good translations. Uh, so you don't have to worry of, was this in here? Was this not? Like, I hope this is not kind of disorienting. Uh, it's just simply that some of this original wording was lost. And to be honest, it doesn't really affect the story as we continue reading. So let's continue in verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. 
Jonathan defeated the garrisons of the Philistines, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So Saul has mustered the troops. Jonathan, which I think is interesting, Jonathan is the one who's described as attacking and kind of winning the battle here. Jonathan attacks the Philistine garrison at Geba. A garrison is a term uh, for the troops that are guarding an outpost. It's a, a, a term for a, a, a group of troops that are possibly kind of guarding the outskirts of the camp. Jonathan attacks them. They get victory. The trumpet's blown, which is like a war signaling device. Uh, and it seems to be Saul's way of alerting Israel that there might be a larger battle to come here. Uh, the people are told of the victory of Saul and Jonathan. The Philistines have been defeated. And they hear this, this term that I think is, that maybe would be, kind of funny to introduce into your common vernacular, that the Israelites had become a stench to the Philistines. Now, this is simply a saying that means, uh, it's a figure of speech, meaning they've become obnoxious. Uh, they have become repulsive, despicable, hated. In other words, there's going to be repercussions for Jonathan's attack on the garrison and that defeat. The Philistines are going to move to do something about it. Uh, but, you know, if your kid's bothering you or someone's bothering you at work, just think about that. And they just become a stench to me. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I think using biblical language is good. <laughs> Verse 5. And the Israelites mustered to fight against Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth Aven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, they hid themselves in caves and in holes, and in rocks, and in tombs, and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now, here's kind of what's happened in this. The Israelites have poked the bear, or poked the beast. I don't know the exact saying, one of those. And the beast has awakened. And they've moved and mustered an army that is described like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Now, I don't think you have to be a, to study sand, uh, which interestingly enough is called aeronology, if you were curious, the study of sand. You don't have to be an expert in sand to know that this is a large group of troops, right? This is a little bit more than what Saul had. So they, they hide. The people are hard pressed. And so much so that when the army comes up and encamps, they, they pretty much take over where Saul encamped at Michmash. So they just kind of take his place. And the people see that they're in trouble as the Philistines have come up to them to Michmash. And they would essentially, by doing this, have gained the high ground. Michmash was on the, the Benjamin, kind of the central Benjamin plateau. So this would have been great military advantage. Uh, the Israelites realized this is not good. They are outnumbered. Now they have the better position. Uh, let's run and hide. Uh, by doing this and encamping at Michmash, they essentially cut off Israel uh, from the coast. So they prevented him from, and they kind of cut Israel in half. So it's a very tactical move that the Philistines are doing in this moment. And the text describes the people as being hard-pressed. This is a dire situation. This is not good. And, and you can see how the people respond. Like hiding in a cave and a tomb, it's not something that kind of healthy, normal people do when they feel safe. They know that this is a dire situation. Things are not good. And others are described as running across the Jordan to the land of Gilead. This would have been the opposite direction as the Philistines who would have been on the west. So they're either hiding in fear, they're running away. And then that last phrase is describing the people who followed Saul followed him with fear or followed him trembling. Now, I think this is ironic because just a couple chapters earlier, right, the people of Israel had called for a king. They said, give us a king who will go out before us and, and fight for us and win our battles, right? And they're almost kind of trusting, no, we don't want the security and our comfort to be with God. We want it to be in a human king. And it's like, now the people have a human king and they're just as afraid as they were when they had God as king, right? They're hiding in cisterns. It, they're hiding in tombs. People are running away. The people who are following the king are following him trembling. So on this occasion, we see a people with little confidence in Saul's leadership or the Lord's protection. Just a chapter earlier, the people had greatly rejoiced that they had a king, and now they're following their king with 
trembling. And it's against this background that we kind of get to the central part of this chapter in chapter 8, where Saul makes a very foolish mistake. He's up at Gilgal, and it says in verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Now you can imagine, Saul probably feeling a lot of anxiety, fear, people are running away from him, they're rapidly slipping away, they're deserting him. Probably a lot of stress that he's under. Samuel's not coming in the time that he was supposed to. He wants to hear from God. He wants to seek his favor, hear his face. But he offers this burnt offering with, he doesn't wait for Samuel. And of course, you know, sometimes we've had these moments too. Like you disobey and it's like as soon as you're in the act of disobedience, your dad or your mom walked in. Did that ever happen to you? It's like really bad timing for Saul. As soon as he finishes, then Samuel comes. It's like, come on, Samuel couldn't have come a little earlier, but that's not the point that, that's happening here, and that's, that's not what I, but what, what, uh, what Samuel's not very pleased with that response. It says in verse 10, as soon as he had finished the offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And I don't think this is Samuel asking a stupid question. I think Samuel's trying to draw out of Saul maybe a confession, repentance, honesty. But we'll see here that uh, Saul doesn't do that. He seeks to justify himself. And instead of confession, he uses three arguments. He says, number one, right after Samuel's question in verse 11, when I saw that the people were scattering from me. That's the reason that that he disobeyed or that he's justifying himself, that people are scattering me. Secondly, and that you did not come with the days appointed. In other words, I did this because you didn't come. In other words, it's your fault. Thirdly, that the Philistines had mustered at Migmash, and I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He felt compressure or compelled. He, this was said that he forced himself. That's what it means. He offered the burnt offering. And Samuel doesn't say, sorry, man, I was a little late. Had to catch up on some prophety things, some priestly duties. He simply says in verse 13, you have done foolishly. Now, foolishness in the Bible is not simply stupidity. It's not doing dumb things. To be a fool in the Bible is to live apart from God's will and his wisdom, apart from his word. Foolishness is not doing things God's way. Foolishness is doing things self-centered way or ways that you you think might be right. So he says, you have done foolishly. It's it's not only that he did make a poor choice, but it was sinful. It was unlawful. It was immoral. He says, you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then... The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Now, in my studies this week, there was a lot of uh, different opinions on what exact commandment is Samuel referencing here that he disobeyed. Some claim that this commandment is found back in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, where Samuel tells Saul to wait seven days at Gilgal, and then Samuel will come to him to offer peace offerings and show him what he shall do. Some people are, think that that's the commandment that Samuel is referencing here. Others think that the commandment found in chapter 10, verse 8, is found a few years earlier, so it can't be that commandment. It it must be some sort of commandment that we don't have recorded, some sort of unrecorded commandment. Uh, Others think that Saul is breaking the commandment found in Numbers 18.7, that only a priest should make offerings, and since Saul is a king, he doesn't have the rights to offer burnt offerings, uh, and Samuel is the priest who should have done this. This is why this was wrong. Still others think that Saul, Saul simply should have waited, and not forced himself to seek the favor of the Lord through his actions, but he should have been patient and learned what God wanted him to do through the prophet Samuel. Right, so there's a lot of different variations on this, but I think, uh, one, it seems to be left a little bit vague or general, because the point is not what commandment Saul disobeyed. Right, whether it is that he didn't wait for Samuel, that he offered something that only the priest should, or some sort of unrecorded commandment that we don't have, the point is that he knew that it was wrong as he seeks to justify himself, and he disobeyed. 
right? Would you guys agree with that? I was thinking about this weekend. It's like, I wonder if we knew exactly what the sin would be. Would we maybe want to come alongside Saul and maybe justify, oh, well, that's an overreaction. I mean, it was just this. Right? Don't we have that in us? And the point is, Saul knew what he was supposed to do. Samuel confronted him. He tried to justify himself, and he was foolish. He did not do what God had asked him to do. And it seems here that Saul was more motivated by circumstances. He was anxious and fearful and seemed to rely upon a religious act of offering a burnt sacrifice to obtain the favor of the Lord rather than simply trusting and obeying. And because of this, Saul is going to kind of be the last king in his family. It says in verse 13, You have not kept the commandment of the Lord which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him. Other translations might say appointed or anointed, like God is already doing this. We see this kind of, this act of sovereignty, even in the midst of Saul's failures, God's still moving and acting and working. And even though this next man who we'll see later is is called a man named David, he's not really introducing the story yet. Like we see a little taste of how God is working and, and his sovereign plans are not frustrated. But because Saul disobeyed God, the Lord has sought after a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now this phrase, a man after his own heart, is a phrase that means, I have sought after a man who's after my own will, who is going to obey me. He will love me. He will seek my purposes, my wisdom, my word. He will do my will. That's what that phrase means. We don't, are we not necessarily recorded how Saul responds to that? I imagine it would be devastating. The story just kind of picks back up after that, that incident of Samuel and Saul at Gilgal. It describes back to uh, the battle and the troops. It says, Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now, see how much the army has dwindled down now, right? It's down to 600. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Geba of Benjamin, and the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the land of the Philistines in three companies. One company torn from Ophrah, the land of Shual. Another company torn to Beth Horon. Another company torn toward the border that looks down at the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness." Now, you might hear that or read that and think this just seems like a description of random names that are kind of weird and hard to pronounce. But what is happening here is a narrator describing the the military uh, kind of tactics of what's happening and the dire situation that the Israelites are in. Because these raiding parties are securing the access roads to Michmash. Ophrah, uh, there was an access road that led to the northwest. From Beth uh, Horon, there was a road that led to the west. From the Ziboam Valley, there was a road that led to the east. So as raiding parties are going out in these three companies, they're essentially cutting off the access roads. So things are not good. Furthermore, verse 19, now there is no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, let the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. The the Philistines have essentially subdued the Philistines so much that they've dominated them. They're without a blacksmith. They don't have any ways of making weapons for war and they've restricted the extent of their warfare. Verse 20, but every one of the, Philist- the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel. This would have been an excessive amount to charge for sharpening. The axes and for setting the goads. Now, this is a fun word that's a simply, uh, it's a tool that was used for kind of prodding cattle, kind of a sharp stick. That's what a goad was. But... Uh, having a monopoly on the metal industry, the Israelites not only have no blacksmith to make weapons, but now they are reliant upon the Philistines to sharpen their everyday kind of agricultural and livestock tools. They're they're pressed. They're getting squished down. And the only people who are described as having weapons in verse 22 is Saul and Jonathan. 
So this monopoly has worked so well that the king, the, only the king and his son have weapons. So imagine wanting to fight for this king. You guys can join, but uh, only myself and my son, we have swords. Uh, you got an axe or a goad? Right, like picture signing up to enlist in the army and your recruiter telling you, um, oh, by the way, um, only the president and the vice president have automatic rifles. Um, you're gonna have to find something around your house to fight with. Do you have like a shovel or maybe a baseball bat, post hole digger, maybe a blowgun? Right, that would be ridiculous. And, and you can see that the situation that the narrative is describing here is not looking good. Okay, you have an army that they made a little attack and got some victory, but then this whole troop, this army got mustered that outweighs, kind of it's described as outnumbering the sand on the seashore. The army themselves has been dwindled to 600 against the thousands that's described as the Philistines. And they don't even have swords. They've got axes and mattocks and sickles and agricultural and farming tools. And then verse 23, the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Michmash. And this pass would have been what cut Israel from going northward. So in any way, the direction that the Israelites wanted to go, they're cut off. They have no weapons. Only their king has a sword. And there's a small number of them who are fighting with everyday household items. And that's how the chapter ends. Like, you, you would think... All right, I guess the ne next chapter describes the annihilation of the Israelite nation because I don't know how they're going to get out of this one. Right, hopefully we're getting that kind of picture of this dismal situation. This is not good. On top of that, imagine the kind of the state that Saul's in as he's rebelled against Samuel and God and he's been rejected. He knows that his line is going to end. His kingdom is not going to be out of there forever. And with that, let's look at our questions. <laughs> How do we make sense of this story? And every week we've been seeking to answer a series of questions. They're, they're found in the handout that you could have gotten on your way in this morning or they'll be up on the screen. And these questions are geared at helping us make sense of the passage. These questions are to be used as a tool, as, as myself and the other elders teach, to equip you as, to be a student of God's word. So hopefully you're taking these questions and you're using them as you study the Old Testament uh, to, to draw meaning out of what God might have for us in the story. And the first question is, number one, what does the story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? Right, outside of the first couple of verses that start positively, everything else is really negative. Saul gets rejected. Uh, the army has been cut off. They're getting taxed for sharpening. They don't have weapons. They're cut off. I mean... It's kind of bleak, isn't it? But as I talked about before, you know, kind of the, the military uh, tactics and the situation that's described uh, for the Philistines is found kind of at the beginning and the end of this chapter. And what I think we can glean from the most about learning about God and how he relates to his people is found in that center section, that, that center of the text, where we see Saul's unlawful sacrifice, his foolish sacrifice from verses 8 down to 14. That's where I want to center in on, on what can we learn about God in this story, particularly in this section of Scripture right here. Uh, I would answer question one like this. God's people have a responsibility to trust and obey the Word of God regardless of circumstances. What God expects out of his people. This is how God's people are to relate with him. This is how they're supposed to be in relationship. Remember, regardless of whether we know the exact commandment that Saul disobeyed, regardless of all the different ideas and opinions there are about what that specifically was, <coughs> Saul was expected to trust and obey that command. And God's people are expected to do the same trust and obey the command of the Lord. Now, I think the story is told in a way that, that as the reader, we can see kind of where Saul is coming from. At least that's kind of how I, I was reading this. I think many can relate to this. The situation is not looking good. Right? Samuel has not come in the time that he said, my troops are leaving. I need to seek the favor of the Lord. I mean, isn't that a good motive? Seeking the favor of the Lord, right? Saul wants to seek the favor of the Lord. But Samuel doesn't come to Saul in verse 11 and say, uh, I'm glad you saw the favor of the Lord. 
That's what's most important. I'm glad that you know you thought I was running late or I didn't come in the time that you thought I would, so you made these offerings. I mean, that, I'm glad you made the sacrifice. The sacrifice was the most important. It's not what Samuel says. He says, no, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. And even though this may appear to be harsh and we don't know all the details, Saul knew what he did was wrong. He doesn't say to Samuel, Samuel, please forgive me. Pray to God for me. I know what I did was wrong. He starts blame shifting. And here, the foolish reasoning that he uses is, okay, number one, I have not sought the favor of the Lord, right? We might think that's a good motive. But then I'm going to commit a sin to seek it, right? I'm going to disobey God to get his favor, essentially, what's happening. And notice what Samuel has repeated twice in verses 13 and 14. So Samuel said, to Saul, you have done foolishly, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord, which he commanded you. And he says in verse 14, uh, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the commandment of the Lord. Kept in this sense is uh, the word observe or conform. It means to obey or practice. That's what's getting at here, because you have not obeyed the word of the Lord. And all of this shows us that regardless of motives, regardless of circumstances, God's people have been called ultimately to trust and obey his word. Let's see how that, that, this idea or this story connects to the larger story of the Bible as we look at question two. Right? In the most immediate context, Saul prefigures many of the evil kings that will come after him, that follow in his footsteps throughout the history of the Bible. Saul is described as being foolish. That's what Samuel calls him. You have acted foolishly. And this word foolish is a word that's used to describe many of the kings in later history who fail to put their trust in God. Samuel offered the burnt offering himself, something that later in the history of the kings, a guy named King Uzziah assumes responsibility as a priest. And he does what only the priests have done, and he's judged by it. That kind of foreshadows and prefigures what we see there. If we take a step back and look at the, the larger story of the Bible, uh, we see that Saul's act of disobedience and Samuel's question of what have you done is a question that's wrung out by God or his people to the disobedient throughout the scriptures. For example, this is the same question that's asked in the story of Jonah. Many of you might have been here a couple years ago. We went through the book of Jonah, but Jonah is the story of a rebellious prophet. God tells him to go one place and to preach, and he goes the opposite direction. He goes down to a port city and boards a ship that's literally sailing in the opposite direction. God's not happy with this. He causes a great storm and a wind to come up about the ship. It's like about to cause the ship to break apart. The sailors are starting to freak out. They realize this is not just kind of a normal storm. This is a great storm. Some sort of God is unhappy with us. So these sailors start crying out to their God. And there's one person who's not crying out to their God, and this guy named Jonah. And he's gone down to the bottom of the ship, and he's fallen fast asleep. And this captain of the ship comes down to, to Jonah and says, What are you doing, you sleeper? Call out to your God, perhaps he will save us. So uh, the sailors think that there's some sort of you know, supernatural deity. Some, some God is unhappy at, at, at their worshiper because of this storm. So they decide to cast lots. Let's see whose responsibility this is. And it falls to, of course, Jonah. We know it's Jonah. He's disobeying God. And what's the question when it comes to Jonah and Jonah confesses, yes, I'm a Hebrew, you know, I'm this is because of me. The sailors ask this question, what is this you have done? If you flip your Bible to the very beginning of the story, there's a story in Genesis 3. God creates his creation. It's very good. He creates humanity, Adam and Eve. Uh, they're living in right relationship with him, uh, but they're deceived by a serpent. They believe that God is not good, that his rule is not kind and gracious, and he doesn't want what's best for them. They're deceived. They disobey him. They eat of the one tree and the fruit that they're not supposed to. And what does God ask Eve when he's confronted them with their sin? What is this you have done? Just a chapter later, there's a story about Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous and angry at his son Abel. He kills his brother, and God asks Abel in Genesis 4.10, What have you done? This is a common refrain that we see throughout the scriptures. And in 1 Samuel, 
13, we have a story that shows the sinful patterns and responses of humanity when confronted with their rebellion. There is unbelief, sin, self-justification, and judgment. And this story shows us that God's people, like we need to change the record here. We are in need of a king who doesn't reflect the sinful, rebellious nature of humanity, of how humanity has responds to God and they rebel against him and they flee from his commands and they do the opposite of what he wants. Ultimately, I think this story points forward to the great king, the perfect king that we see in King Jesus. Jesus is the only king who obeys God perfectly and who does all that the Father asks of him. Jesus is the king whose kingdom is for eternity. Jesus' kingdom will never be cut off. It'll never be overthrown. Jesus is the king who didn't fight against a mere military or political enemy. He fought against the greatest, the cosmic powers and rulers and authorities and the ruler, evil ruler of this age, the snake, the Satan, God's greatest adversary. And when Jesus is tempted by Satan, Jesus fully obeys and trusted in the word of God. When Jesus is confronted with demons, Jesus fully and totally dismantles them. The way that the people of Israel are described following Saul with trembling because of the Philistine army is the way that the demons are described in being faced with Jesus. He is, no one is a match for Jesus. When Jesus is faced with anxiety and people are deserting him and his friends are falling asleep, Jesus stays faithful to God perfectly until the end. Jesus says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And the way that our King Jesus defeated our great enemy and sought to put an end to enslavement, to sin and to death and to Satan, to change humanity's rebellious and by and unbelieving ways is by undoing its power. He came to die, to kill death through his own death, to defeat Satan by being defeated, to end the power of sin by becoming sin in our place. Jesus did not simply offer a burnt offering. He became the offering. Jesus took the place and took the guilt and shame and sin of his people upon himself. He was cut off from God so that men and women and children would be brought back to God. Jesus received condemnation so that if anyone would trust in him and his word, they would receive vindication. This is the great King Jesus that we have. This is the great King Jesus that this imperfect and rebellious Saul points to. So what do we do in light of that? What admonition or exhortation does this story offer? What does this story call us to do or not to do? And it's not very creative on this one, guys, and, and, and hopefully you can see the progression as we work through the text. You can answer it for yourself. Question three. Anyone? I know I don't do this often, but a response that's not rhetorical. I'm asking a question, I guess. Trust and obey. Trust and obey the commandment of the Lord. When you look at verse 13 and 14, and you see that sandwich that Samuel presents Saul. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord. He would, he would establish your kingdom forever, but now it's not. The Lord's seeking a man from his own heart. And then he ends the, the other, I guess that would be the bread of the sandwich, because you've not kept the commandment of the Lord. It seems like in the middle there is a counter contrast. So Saul not kept the commandment of the Lord. God is seeking someone after his own heart who will keep his commandment, who will trust. A man who's unlike Saul, a man who is after God's own heart. And I don't think, friends, that we should take this to mean that God is looking and expecting a sinless human. Because even this phrase, God is looking after, seeking a man after his own heart, does not mean that this man who's described later, this guy David, means that he's perfect and he never disobeys. In fact, this story can be a little disorienting when you think about this and compared to David because David sins and disobeys in, in a pretty great way. If you don't know this, he commits adultery, he impregnates a married woman, and then to cover it up, he kills the husband of the married woman in battle by saying, hey guys, go out and attack. And then when he's kind of out in front, everyone pull back. So he's going to die. Like David orchestrates all of that. And you might think, what? Saul here seeking the favor of the Lord offers a sacrifice that I shouldn't supposed to, and he's cut off, and yet David commits adultery and murder, and he's not? Okay. Have you, I mean, that's what I thought this week. You guys thinking that? Maybe I put that thought into your mind just now. 
What is going on here? How is David described as a man after God's own heart? Why is Saul treated like this? Doesn't he have good motives? He wants to seek the favor of the Lord? Now, friends, I want to be careful because there is no explanation in Scripture as, as to why. Right? And the Scriptures are clear. God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. The fact that God had mercy on David in, in that instant, and we might not think of it as mercy in this sense with Saul, who are we to question how the potter works and to mold his vessels? That's a clear teaching of Scripture. But I think the overarching principle in the Scripture and in the Bible is, certainly in the teaching of Jesus, is the greatest sin, the sin beneath the sin that, that cuts you off from God, the sin that sends you to hell, is not external disobedience or outward behavior. It's not compliance to rituals or rites. It's self-righteousness. In Saul, you see someone who trusted in himself. He may seem to have motives that aren't wrong, but at the center is a lack of trust. I don't think David is described as being a man after God's own heart because he didn't sin like Saul, but he trusted in God. When David was confronted with his sin, he was brokenhearted, he saw his sin, he confessed, and he repented. So this, I think this phrase, a man after God's own heart, does not mean better behaviorally, but at the center, at the heart, at his core, was a person of trust in God. Friends, the people who received the strongest rebukes by Jesus were not the sinners, the prostitutes or the tax collectors. They were the religious leaders who are described as self-righteous. Those who trusted in their own goodness, their own strength, their own acts for the right standing with God. And what marks an individual who is truly a follower of Jesus or a child of God, a person described who is being after God's own heart, is not a perfect person. A person who has it all together or pretends to. That is often an instance that reveals that they don't understand the grace or the gospel. Christian is a person that at his core trusts not in themselves, but trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross. I think, friends, that, that we are often more like Saul than we'd like to admit. Because when there are terrible circumstances around us, when there's enemies and people are leaving us, who do we trust in? I think the circumstances in this story revealed Saul's trust and obedience in God, didn't it? It's not that Saul trusted God and then these circumstances changed that, but the circumstances revealed where the trust was. And I think in our life, suffering and hard circumstances do the same thing. Suffering reveals what we really trust in. In suffering, we are tempted to seek approval and security and deliverance apart from God. We feel like God is against us, or God doesn't love us, or we're waiting on God. God hasn't shown up or proven himself to us like he said he would. We're tempted to numb and to cope through material pleasures or things outside of God's will and his way. And I think in this way, suffering becomes a great grace of God, where he refines us and purifies us where he reveals our sin and draws it out of us and presses belief in the gospel and belief in the promises of the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts. It's easy to say that you trust in God when everything in your life is going well, isn't it? But when life doesn't pan out as you pictured, when you're experiencing suffering, who do you turn to? And what do you trust in? When people reject us and we experience marital problems and conflicts, when we're stressed or sad or overwhelmed or anxious or worried, who and what that we turn to for relief or for joy or for peace, ultimately, that's what rests at the center of our trust. This kind of flies in the face of our natural tendencies, though, doesn't it? Natural tendencies, we think... God kind of exists to serve me. He's kind of promised a life of comfort, free of suffering. Everything's supposed to work out as I planned. And yet, I think, friends, if we have that attitude either, right, we haven't lived long enough or we're just not in reality.
And if everything, our status and our right relationship with God is found on based on, on what we do and keeping a face or keeping a front, then we're not going to be honest with one another in community. We're going to feel like we need to put a face on because if you think less of me, then my worth is based on that. Practically speaking, in my life, I, I found that I often, I often feel anxious. And, and feeling anxious, I once heard a psychotherapist say, at the root of anxiety is trying to control something you were never intended to control. So when I'm feeling anxiety, I, I think, okay, what am I believing? What is this feeling showing me and revealing about my belief? And I have friends that I process with or Stephanie and community. And what often is drawn out is what I'm believing is that I'm in control, that God is not, that I have a better plan, and that I'm more knowledgeable than God, that I know what's best more than God. And when my plans are shown to be not sovereign, because I have no control over them, only God does, it frustrates me and I experience anxiety. Now, practically speaking, that looks like realizing in that moment what's really happening. God, I'm not trusting in you. Forgive me. I believe that you are in control. I trust in your sovereign plan. You know what's best. Help me to live in light of the freedom and joy of your care. And, and this kind of daily examination and reflection is really important in growing as a Christian, deepening your trust in him. But this doesn't just happen alone. This happens in community, doesn't it? We need a community that's centered and marked by the gospel who will remind us the truth of the gospel and call us out of unbelief and lack of trust. That kind of can see our behaviors and how we can function in a way that we don't even realize. Like you could call them blind spots. That we don't even realize that we're really doing this. Like some of the most loving things that people have said to me is, Daniel, I think you really struggle with people pleasing. Now, I wouldn't say, yeah, I'm a people pleaser and I, I want to do that. That was, honestly, that was like, wow, in this moment, that's what it is. Or, or Daniel, you don't have to turn to YouTube or TV or entertainment to numb your feelings. You don't have to be enslaved to what others think of you and believe you have to live up to their standards. You're free in Christ. Like, those things are freeing to your soul. And, and in community, we get to experience those by people who love us and can see kind of the incongruencies of our confession and our actions. Does that make sense? So in light of what, what God is, is showing us and teaching us, what he's revealing about his character, that, that regardless of circumstances and external factors, God expects his people to trust and obey to him. That this passage invites us to trust and obey and to examine those areas of unbelief and lack of trust that we have. I pray that we would live as a trusting and an obedient people. That would kind of mark us as a church. We would be trusting and obedient, that, that we would cherish the fact that we have the favor of God. We don't have to do anything to earn it. It's been given to us freely because of Christ. Because we place our faith in Christ the same way that God looks at Jesus with the perfection and the righteousness and the approval, that's freely given to us by justification. We don't have to seek to earn his favor. We have it. And we can cherish the fact that Jesus was cut off so that we would never be. And let's praise God for his grace and mercy that in Christ there is no condemnation that all his acts towards us are from a tender father who loves us. Even if it may seem harsh in the moment or we don't see all the details or we don't understand how he's working, we trust, God, you are my good father and you love me. You have never failed me and you never will. You have never failed your people, you never will. We don't have to worry about all the details, right? Like how does a good God allow suffering? How can he work it out for good? I don't know. But I know that through a great act of evil, Jesus came and died, and salvation's offered to the world, <laughs> right? How can suffering and evil be used for good? Look at the cross, right? Suffering and the life that, that we're living that we it might not be up to our expectations, and even the suffering that we might be facing right now are acts of God's kindness and goodness toward us as he's refining something in us, as he's purifying us as he's revealing what we're prone to trust in and calling us to trust with more increasing faith and maturity in Jesus alone. So friends, I, I hope and pray that I maybe did some justice to this end of 1 Samuel and, and prepared us for Advent. 
uh, I want us to kind of take away from 1 Samuel 13, 14, that, that promise of hope and focus our minds on that as we move into the Advent season, that the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because even in the midst of this dire and bleak story, king has rebelled, people seemingly have no hope. God has promised to send a king who would be a good king. And in the midst of rejection, there is hope. And in the midst of this rebellion and sin, there is a promise. So as we wrap up 1 Samuel and move into Advent, let's do so praising God that he does not give up on his people, that even in the midst of rebellion and rejection, that there is hope and there is a promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for calling us to trust and obey you. We know there's no safer space or no place that's more secure than trusting you. Father, may we be a people who trust and obey your word regardless of circumstances around us or what things we may be experiencing. Maybe you be a people who consider the great things that you have done. Maybe we be a people who don't take your grace for granted. As we reflect upon your mercies that are new every morning, that that leads us to thanksgiving and praise, that you are so faithful to us, God. Father, I thank you for this church that you are building and forming for these deep friendships and brothers and sisters that, that you have blessed me with in this church, that are united by your blood. Father, I praise you for the, the work of freedom and joy that you've done in my heart as you revealed enslavement to people-pleasing and perfectionism and unbelief and control and anxiety and image and... God, I just thank you for the, the great act of grace of this church. And Father, I pray that, that as I have experienced this freedom and this joy of really believing the gospel and, and knowing, yes, I, I think I believe the gospel now, but I know a year from now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look back and say, you idiot. Father, would you do this act of freeing and, and, and great works of grace in the lives of this church? That you would call us to yourself and trusting in you that your commands would, would, would not appear to be burdens and, and weights, that you, like, you want us to kind of, you want to suck the fun out of life and, you know, following you is kind of, just means self-abandonment that's really kind of doomy and gloomy. But Father, that you are a good Father who's called us and brought us through suffering for our joy. Thank you for the way that you have purified this church and that you are purifying it now. Pray that you would, you would keep us faithful, that we would love one another, and that we would remain humble and, and, and trusting, not in ourselves and how great we are, but in Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you. I ask that you would, would do all these things for your namesake. In your name I pray. Amen.